Welcome back to another episode of Remnant Stew. I'm your host, Steve. And I'm Leah. You know, the U.S. is chock full of monuments and memorials. Chock full, exactly. Chock full. (laughs) Today we're going to explore some surprising trivia surrounding the well-known monuments and feature some not-so-well-known monuments that are both bizarre and unusual. So grab your spoon. Oh, this is going to be good. If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural, free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. Well, now, before we jump into these monumental monuments, let's look at the calendar. Of course, yesterday was July the 4th, so we hope everyone had a terrific Independence Day. Happy July 4th to all of you. Um, you might not know, though, that tomorrow, Tuesday, July 6th, is International Kissing Day. What? That sounds like a great day, I'm thinking. <laughs> no matter what type of kiss you prefer, International Kissing Day on July 6th is the perfect time of year to celebrate this simple but powerful gesture. From French kissing and a formal kiss on the cheek to a kiss hello and a kiss goodbye. Kissing is an age-old practice with significance that extends far beyond just romance. So everybody get out and enjoy International Kissing Day on Tuesday, July 6th. Now, I think this next day... Hey, uh, I can't believe I can't believe Phil stayed quiet. <laughs> I think Phil's in shock. <laughs> Phil's in shock. Or, or maybe he's contemplating how he's going to spend Kissing Day. Maybe. Well, actually, well, before you think about it... It's rather close to my birthday. So. You really need to, uh, to combine it. I think these two will combine really well with uh, Wednesday, July uh, 7th. Because uh, that day is World Chocolate Day. Okay. Okay. Yes. Uh, so some like it bribery? dark. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> you're saying bribery? <laughs> if that's the only way. I think they could go together. Yeah, I think it could work. Yeah. Uh, some like it dark and bitter. Others smooth and sweet. But we're no talking matter. about chocolate, right? Yeah, yes. chocolate, right? Okay. Chocolate, chocolate, right? Uh, but whatever, uh, whatever your flavor preference, this World Chocolate Day on July 7th, join us in taking a bite. Now, this may be a sexist statement, probably will be, but, you know, it's been my experience that men like chocolate, women love chocolate. I can get behind that. Oh, you think that's accurate? Yes. <laughs> now, don't forget, next Thursday of next week, July 15th, this is a good day, it's National Give Something Away Day. It's a great time to clean out that closet, find some useful items that uh, you don't need anymore, but somebody else might get some good use out of, and give it away. Oh, okay. Awesome. There it is. Yeah. So basically that was, you know, drop your hoarding stuff over onto the message <laughs> yard. <laughs> yes. Right. Over the fence it goes. I know. I, I've got, we've all got things we, we can clear out that uh, somebody else could uh, really use, I'm sure. I try to pawn it off on my kids, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> well, now back to our topic, national monuments. What is a monument? According to Google Dictionary, a monument is a statue a building, or other structure erected to commemorate a famous or notable person or event. It's also a building, a structure, or a site that is of historical importance or interest. We have a lot of uh, unique monuments around. I think when I think of the word monument, um, kind of the first thing that comes to my mind is the Washington Monument, naturally. Right. uh, In Washington, D.C. This is from the National Park Service. Um, the, the monument uh, commemorates President George Washington. 
It was first conceived in 1833 with the creation of the Washington National Monument Society with Supreme Court Chief Justice John Marshall as its leader. After a dozen years of raising funds, the society selected a design by architect Robert Mills. With great fanfare, the cornerstone was laid on July 4, 1848, with President James K. Polk in attendance. Six years later, the monument had reached the height of 152 feet. However, construction was halted as the Washington National Monument Society ran out of money. Uh, kind right. of a bummer right there. <laughs> it was like this huge fanfare and raising of money yeah. and all of this, and then it came to a screeching halt. Yeah, we, we, halt. we only got it about a third of the way up and uh, ran out of money, But the, so that's that's the way it was. And so it, it uh, set that way uh, un- incomplete for quite a while. In fact, um, one of the things that probably hindered more fun, uh, money raising was that the Civil War uh, was looming. and that, In fact, during the Civil War, the unfinished monument grounds became grazing land for cattle that belonged to the government. You don't think about cattle belonging to the government, but I guess they needed it for uh, for the soldiers, right, uh, for, for the, the Union troops. soldiers. The project sat dormant for many years until finally in 1876, the centennial year, Congress approved $2 million for its completion with the provision that ownership would be transferred to the United States government. Now, if you look at a picture of the Washington Monument closely, you can detect a slight color variation at that 152-foot level as rock from a different quarry was used to complete the project. Initial construction was completed in December of 1884. The Otis Brothers, you ever looked at an Otis elevator? Yeah, they were the first ones to create the elevator. Well, they installed one of their newfangled devices in the monument in 1886, the Otis Elevator. And the Washington Monument finally opened to the public on October of 1888, 40 years after construction had begun. (laughs) Oh, wow. So at least it was finished uh, after a while. Now, while the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C. certainly is impressive, you might not know that this was not the first Washington Monument that was constructed. In fact, it's not even the first Washington Monument that Robert Mills designed. Okay. No, I didn't know that. Well, let's, uh, let's get on to this. this. is an interesting story. It goes back a few years earlier, back in 1815, just up the road from Washington in Baltimore, Maryland. Robert Mills submitted the winning design for a 170-foot-tall monument that would honor the first president. This Washington Monument was completed in 1829. It is constructed of marble and contains three elements, a low square base that contains a gallery. That's kind of how you get into it. An uh, unfluted column. I guess that means it doesn't taper. It's got a circular column that goes way up. And atop the column is a standing figure of Washington, a statue of him standing up there. Just below the statue is a terrace, which can be reached by a spiral staircase, and it affords visitors a grand view of Baltimore. Uh, Citizens of Baltimore, by the way, at the time, they were feeling pretty proud in 1815 when they decided to commission this monument, because just the previous year, they had fought off the same British invaders who had raided Washington, D.C., and set fire to the White House in 1814. So they were saying, we're feeling our oats. Let's, Let's just build us a monument to to George Washington here in Baltimore. Now, now, you have to tell me, have you been to either of these Washington Well, monuments? I have been to the Washington Monument a long time ago when I was a teenager, okay. uh, many, many years ago. Uh, but uh, I, haven't, I haven't seen the one in Baltimore. It looks really interesting, though. Well, did you know that there's e- another, even another Wait a minute, Washington there's more? Monument. There's more. <laughs> but wait, there's, there's more. more. 
<laughs> Washington was very like he was probably the last president that everybody loved. Right, <laughs> first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. We we said that That's on right. a previous broadcast. That's right. Did you know that there's even another Washington monument? No, get out of town. <laughs> this one is known as the Washington Mini Monument. Since it's oh, only, mini me, huh? Yeah, it's like a mini me. It's right. only 12 and a half feet high, and it looks just like the main one on the mall. Right. Um, and it's located just south of the main monument. Uh, but this one's completely hidden. Well, how did I miss it? Well, I was just wondering how I missed it. it now you're saying it's hidden. That's where, right. Where, it's where hidden. did they hide it? So the mini monument was built uh, as a small-scale replica of the original Washington Monument, and it was placed in the 1880s as part of a transcontinental leveling program. It's wait a, a minute, bit, a wait, transcontinental leveling? We, yes. th- they wanted to level the continent back then? Is that what it was? <laughs> well, wow. well, okay, so its official name is Benchmark A. Oh, okay. So Atlas Obscura, we love Atlas Obscura. Right. We got a lot of our information in this episode from it. Right. It tells us that, part of the, that it is part of a network of a million control points across the country that aid in calibrating a surveyor's equipment. Oh, okay, okay. Survey, a yeah. survey marker. Okay, that makes so, sense. Yeah, it's important to have these stationary benchmarks in order to create accurate maps right uh this particular benchmark has been in use since the early 1900s it was constructed above ground but as it started sinking they were going to tear it down but Mm. instead and i just i don't understand the whole reasoning behind this but let's bury it let's bury it that's what they did (laughs) and so that now it's covered by a manhole and is largely unknown outside of surveying circles wow you um, think they could get to pick up a few extra bucks taking people down to see the mini monument well, and i think well you can you can oh okay you could take a tour of it they take you over there and they <laughs> well, pull the pull off, off. there you, you go that'll be 10 bucks it. please Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and while we're talking about the mall and for those of you not in america that may that may not be familiar with it the national mall refers to the long grassy park that right. is home to many american monuments and memorials in washington dc i think it stretches from the capitol to the washington Monument. that's right at the eastern end, eastern end is the u.s capitol building the white house is to the north and mm-hmm. the smithsonian museums also border the mall that's right so talking about the Smithsonian Museum, a lot of people place. don't realize that the smithsonian isn't just one museum but a collection of 19 separate museums and is the l- world's largest Yeah, it takes museum. a long time to a try to walk. see it all. Yes, for sure. Uh, and I, I've been to a couple shoes. of those museums, I but it to. would take weeks. Yep. It would take absolute weeks to go through all of them. Its founder, James Smithson, had actually never even been to America. Really? When Smithson died, his substantial estate was bequeathed to his nephew with the stipulation that if his nephew were to die without an heir... Then the estate would be turned over to the U.S. so the country could build a hub for, and I quote, in, uh, for the increase and diff- diffusion of knowledge. Increase and diffusion of knowledge. Well, that's, that's what right. we want. That's what we do right here on Remnants Do. That's right. <laughs> we increase and diffuse it. So Smithson's uh, nephew, luckily for us, died six years after <laughs> after Smithson. And, uh, and so it was that the U.S. was tasked with, tasked with figuring out exactly how to carry that out. Okay, so there are a lot of ways to interpret the increase and diffusion of knowledge. It took 10 years and a lot of debate before the idea of a museum was decided upon. So why would a man who had never been to America leave his estate to the country? Well, no one really knows, but Smithson was born in Paris, the illegitimate son of French nobility, and he struggled with that all his life. Oh, okay. That makes some sense now. Uh, So it's speculated that he didn't want to give his estate over to any nation that was ensconced in the class structure and 
aristocratic sorry mm-hmm. society that uh, he never quite fit into. In in spite of him being, he was an incredibly accomplished scientist. Right. He wanted his wealth to benefit the common man and everyday scientists. That's great. That's a great story. And then in 1904, 75 years after his death, Smithson's burial site was being displaced by the expansion of a stone quarry. The Smithsonian agreed to take possession of his remains so that he could be then interred at the site of his legacy. The body was entombed and topped off by a marker in the Smithsonian and can be viewed by the general public. And so I got all my... Uh, info from mental floss and now I'm planning a road trip. Okay, so he died <laughs> like in Europe somewhere then when they brought yeah, his body. Yeah, and, and I don't really know uh, where he died because he was very well traveled but he right. just didn't happen to come to America. Interesting, really interesting. Until after well, that. Well, we're, we're all in the, uh, uh, to the benefit of Mr. Smithson for sure. Okay, so another memorial uh, at the mall is the Lincoln Memorial. Right, beautiful. Very iconic. It's it's huge structure, uh, yes. and I've been to it. Uh, it looks like a Greek temple with a row of Doric columns. Right. And uh, if you're wondering what it looks like, you can just look at a $5 bill or the back of a pen. On the back, yes. So you may think, like I did, that the memorial is just one solid structure made of stone uh, just set right there on the ground, but it's actually supported on pillars. They go 40 feet deep into the earth. Wow. Uh, I think it's built that way because the ground is somewhat marshy in that area due to the yeah. Potomac. All of Washington D.C. is kind of a marsh. Well, and so they need a, a big foundation for. I mean, because this has got this is a huge monument right. or, or memorial. So it actually has you know a basement. There's, Lincoln Memorial <laughs> has a basement. It has a basement. So a three-story, forty-three thousand eight hundred square foot basement that they call the Undercroft. Okay. And some people from the National and us. Uh, Speleological Society Society actually deemed the cellar, the man-made cellar, a cave because it has stalactites (laughs) and its own ecosystem. Yes. Of of, course it does. Insects and rodents and everything. Really? And it's because, okay, it's because of the, it was made with um, marble and limestone. Right. It just just happened to work out that way. And it sits right next to the Potomac. Yeah, that's right. Right, exactly. So there are stalactites down there. There's also graffiti. Okay, there's well, some writing not? and some cartoons, but not, okay, so not like the graffiti <laughs> that you're thinking of. It's graffiti from the original builders. Oh, okay. And um, it, so it dates back to 1914, and the historic graffiti has actually been preserved now under plexiglass. You okay. may be able to go down and see the basement slash cave slash undercroft in person since the National Park Society now wants to uh, rehabilitate it and open it up to the, un- open up the undercroft in time for the Lincoln Memorial's centennial in 2022. That's just next year. Wow. So I wonder what was the original purpose for it. Do you have any idea? Well, I mean, there wasn't a purpose. It just was part of the construction. Okay. It was just just part of the construction. As they put these uh, columns down into the the earth, it just created this, you know, instead of filling it up with concrete, because, again, it's, it's, you know, 40 feet down. So... Okay, so while we're on the topic of presidential monuments, let's go to Mount Rushmore. And it's I have located, not been there. <laughs> it, I haven't I have, either. I have. It's, it's, okay. it's impressive. Oh, wow. You've been there. It okay. is very impressive, and it's very beautiful. The whole area. 
gorgeous. Well, it's not located in Washington, D.C. No, it's so not in Washington. It is in South, South Dakota, Dakota, in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And what four presidents, don't look at the paper, but what four presidents? Can you, can okay, you name them? I believe it's Washington, Jefferson, Lincoln, and Teddy Roosevelt. That's right. That is correct. That's right. And one fun fact about Mount uh, Rushmore is that Roosevelt, who always wore spectacles, is not actually wearing them in this depiction of the mountain. Not exactly anyway. It may look like he does, though, because of an intentional and clever optical illusion. Okay. Where the frame of his glasses would touch Roosevelt's face, they are carved out, so it's just really a suggestion. Yeah, I, I, I remember my memory yeah. thinking that it looked like he was wearing glasses. Yes, so it's more of a suggestion rather than natural sculpture. So where the frames don't touch his face, they're not there. And, right. of course, the lenses aren't there. Um, so it's just a really, really cool way of, of doing that. And another odd thing about Mount Rushmore is that there's a secret chamber behind Lincoln's head. <laughs> really? <laughs> He's a little empty-headed back there. Um, according to TravelAndLeisure.com, Rushmore's sculptor Gutson, Gutson that's G-U-T, or maybe it's Gutson. Gutson, I think. Gutson, yeah, Borglum, yeah. wanted to expand the monument to include a repository with an entrance crowned by a bronze eagle Accessible okay. by a grand staircase. So he had all these had lofty, lofty ideas. Goal, yeah. Right. With vaulted ceilings, busts, and bronze and glass cabinets that housed the artifacts of American history. Right. So like a museum. The construction was started and a tunnel was blasted into the canyon, into Lincoln's head. And then it was all abandoned. Does that hmm. sound a little familiar? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the unfinished Hall of Records remains off limits to visitors. It's the bearer of titanium vault with uh, porcelain panels outlining milestones in U.S. history, so maybe someday they'll oh, finish that, it. That would be, yeah, be nice is. to see it completed. I mean, oh. that, the, the whole monument is just, it, the whole area around it and everything is just absolutely beautiful. I'm thinking remnants do road trip. Road trip. Bring it. Let's road go. trip. That's a long road trip. <laughs> <laughs> I've driven it. We're going we're gonna to go all the way out to Washington, D.C. and just right. circle back. Yeah. Right. Circle through, you know, South Dakota on our way home to Texas. For sure. Well, as nice as all these monuments are, and they are nice, but we know what our listeners really like. Bizarre and strange. That's right. We can hear you saying, how about some really bizarre monuments? Well, don't worry. We have you covered right here. Let's start off back in uh, down in South Texas. You know, back in the 1950s, there were some wacky scientists down in South America, and they were trying to improve local honey production by crossing European honeybees with African bees. Wacky scientists. Yes. I think they've been called. Worse yeah, than well, that. worse than that. I was being nice <laughs> we to them. Thank you. Uh -huh. Not. <laughs> Unfortunately, some of the African bees escaped their apiary and began mating with the locals, creating a super aggressive subspecies that have come to be known as killer, killer bees. bees. The unruly bees began to spread northward, killing hundreds of people and animals along the way. In October of 1990, a colony of some 3,000 were found just outside the South Texas town of Hidalgo. Well, rather than being intimidated by their unwelcome newcomers, the good folks in Hidalgo decided to build an enormous killer bee monument to commemorate their arrival. Oh, it's because a, why not? That's strange. <laughs> it's hideous looking, too. We got a picture of it. Wait, yes, we do. <laughs> so that's the killer bee monument in Hidalgo. Now, let's go up to the Midwest, shall we? Uh, some of my family came from the state of Illinois, not too far from where this is located. Uh, back in uh, back in the sixties, I can remember a TV show uh, that was called Land of the Giants. 
Well, you know, the show never really revealed the true location of its mythical land, but I think that it might have been Casey, Illinois, because this Midwest city boasts monuments to no less than 12 of the world's largest items. If you go to Casey, you'll get to visit, and here's the complete, uh, at least the partial list, includes the world's largest rocking chair. That looks exciting, doesn't it? The world's <laughs> largest wind chime. Now that, yeah. that would get on my nerves, I think. The, uh, the world's largest golf tee. The world's largest wooden shoes. Now, I like this one. The world's largest pitchfork, because you need it out yep, in the Midwest, right? you know. Yeah. Now, here's a good one. The world's largest rural mailbox. Okay. It, you can actually walk around in it. It's huge. Uh, <laughs> has a balcony. Seriously. The world's largest key, the world's largest gavel. Uh, some of you will like this. The world's largest twizzle spoon. What is that? I think it's a thing you your swizzle stick. You stir your okay, drinks. I know around. what a swizzle stick is, but a, a twizzle, twizzle spoon. Sp- okay. I believe that's we what look it is. That up. Well, maybe so. Uh, the world's largest golf driver, of course, to go with the world's largest tea, yeah. right? The world's largest barbershop pole, the, the little the red and white uh, yeah. striped pole that swirls around. So is there a barbershop that goes with it? I don't know. Oh, okay. And the world's <laughs> largest teeter-totter. I don't know if it's a functioning one, but it seems to be the world's largest uh, uh, teeter-totter. In fact, according to their website, Casey, Illinois, bills itself as the world's largest small town. So oh, that's funny. Okay. Let's include that on our road trip. Uh, See, Casey, and I Illinois. wonder, I wonder, okay, do other countries have this kind of weird thing? <laughs> oh, I because, think they do. Because we have like roadside attraction type things. So, so in Texas, in Seguin, you've got the the largest pecan. Have right, you seen yeah. that? Like, yeah, I've seen that. So I remember driving through going, what, what is that? Okay. Right. Nope. <laughs> I've seen some things in other countries, too, and I think that's going to be the fodder for another episode of uh, international monuments that are unusual. Now, let's go out to California. Speaking of uh, television, you remember the old Johnny Carson show, Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson. I know I'm going back 30 years, uh, but um, there was a reoccurring um, feature called the Tea Time Movie on the Johnny Carson show. Okay, I remember Johnny Carson, but I don't remember the Tea Time. Well, in this, it was a skit that he would play uh, uh, from time to time, and he played a TV salesman named Art Fern who was always hawking some kind of phony business. Now, as a part of the running gag uh, that was uh, that was in part of this uh, skit was that the, in giving directions to getting to this business, he would always include the statement, when you come to the, the fork, fork in the road, road, and then he would display a map that actually contained an actual dinner fork on the map, you know, and it was a sight gag, you know, and everybody would laugh. Well, that must have been the inspiration for Bob Stone and Ken Marshall of Pasadena, California, the two local businessmen noted uh, a forlorn intersection in their city that they thought needed a landmark. Hence, they sponsored the construction of an 18-foot dinner fork. Right, <laughs> let's stick a fork in it. Right, right at the point where the two roads split. Now, the giant fork has become the site for community gatherings and philanthropic efforts, such as food drives. Yeah, meet so, me at the fork. The fork of the road. Right now. This next one is odd. If you <laughs> if you're ever up in Boston, so we've we've covered the whole country. We've gone from South Texas to Illinois to California. Now we're off on the East Coast in Boston. We want to cover everybody. Something for everyone in the country here. So if you're ever up in Boston and decide to take a stroll through the Boston Public Garden, you will soon notice an elaborate forty foot stone monument. 
At the top of the monument, <laughs> I can't say it without laughing. Yes. At the top of the monument is an unusual statue. If you get close, you can see that the statue shows a medical doctor holding the body of a man over his knee, using ether on a cloth to get him in the slumped straight uh, slump state uh, that that we just said uh, depicted. My friend, you have just encountered the ether monument. The ether, okay. The, the ether, ether monument. monument. That's right. So now is you it might, a gas? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> now you might think it's a bit odd that an elaborate monument would be dedicated to ether, and you'd be right. But before the use of ether, you got to remember that many people never survived surgery due to the terrible right, pain right. involved. A relief uh, on the side of the monument reads, to commemorate that the inhaling of ether causes insensibility to pain. It reads, first proved to the world at the Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, October, and it has a big long Roman numeral, which I think is 1846, if I did the deciphering correctly. Uh, Massachusetts General Hospital, the site noted in this inscription, is just a short walk away from the monument, and its original operating theater is nicknamed the Ether Dome, and it is now a protected National Historic Site as well. So the Ether Monument is uh, appropriately displayed there in Boston. Okay. All right, now let's go back to the middle of the country. If you're ever traveling through Alliance, Nebraska, you'll definitely want to stop and make some time to uh, to see Carhenge. (laughs) <laughs> and enjoy the very unique replica of the famed British Stone Circle. Now, I wait. We okay. So we are going to have an episode on international monuments. We got to talk about Stonehenge. Like it is the most replicated. Right. And, and I'll, I'll be completely do- honest with you. I, I saw Stonehenge uh, a couple of years ago, and I think Carhenge sounds a lot more interesting than Stonehenge <laughs> does, <laughs> frankly, because uh, oh they, they don't let you get you very are- close to it. Uh, the real Stonehenge, you, you're like a uh, good 50 feet away from it in a rope, uh, a rope circle. You can walk completely around it. But whereas Carhenge, you can go right up to it. Uh-huh. You can <laughs> clearly, even touch it. Yeah, you can touch it. Right. So let's see how this came about. As an artist, uh, Jim Reinders enjoyed experimenting with unusual and interesting artistic creations throughout his life. While living in England, he had the opportunity to study the design and purpose of Stonehenge. His desire to copy Stonehenge in physical size and placement came to fruition in the summer of 1987 with the help of many family members. Carhenge was built as a memorial to Reinder's father, who once lived on the farm where Carhenge now stands. While relatives were gathered following the death of Reinder's father in 1982, the discussion turned to a memorial, and the idea of a Stonehenge replica was developed. The family agreed to gather in five years and build it. The clan, about 35 strong, gathered in June of 1987 and went to work. The dedication was held on the summer solstice of 1987 with champagne, poetry, songs, and a play written by the family. This sounds like <laughs> this a pretty fam- impressive yes. family, oh, wow. I've got to say. <laughs> so it started out like, hey, 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 I got an idea. <laughs> yeah, right. And everybody's like, I like it. Let's jump oh, on to that. Whereas in my family, I'm like, hey, hey, hey I got an idea. And they're like, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Mom. 39 automobiles were placed to assume the same proportions as Stonehenge, with a circle measuring approximately 96 feet in diameter. Some models are held upright in pits five feet deep, trunk end down, while those cars which were placed to form the arches have been welded in place. All are covered in gray spray paint. The honor of depicting the heel stone goes to a 1962 Cadillac. (laughs) (laughs) So, Car Hinge in Alliance, Nebraska. Now, 
This is a really interesting. I like this one. Um, we mentioned a couple of old TV shows here a second ago. Uh, so speaking of old TV shows, in 1985, a fellow named Steve Miller, who was a city council member in Riverside, Iowa, and he was also a huge Star Trek fan. While reading a book written by Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, Miller was struck by the author's statement that, quote, Captain James T. Kirk was born in a small town in Iowa on March 22, 2228. Although the town's name wasn't mentioned, Miller thought, why not Riverside? (laughs) Why not? Why not Riverside? So at the next city council meeting, he proposed that Riverside bill itself as the future birthplace of Captain James T. Kirk. (laughs) The motion passed unanimously. Sure, why not? Yeah. (laughs) The town changed their motto from where the best begins to where the trek begins. (laughs) I love that. I love that. Now, in 2009, the creators of the Star Trek movie remake that came out that year honored Miller's efforts by officially naming Riverside as the birthplace of Captain Kirk. The entire town was invited to a special sneak pre-screening of the film, which took place in nearby Iowa City because Riverside doesn't have a movie theater. (laughs) Had to go out of town for that one. So it's a really small town. All right. Now, here's another one from the Midwest. A fellow named Sam France, F-R-A-N-T-Z. He was a farmer and an inventor from Dublin, Ohio. My wife's from Ohio. I always have to say that when we mention Ohio. Uh, He was interested in developing new species of hybrid corn. From 1935 to 1963, France farmed a plot of ground just outside of Dublin, which is also near Columbus, the state capital and the site of Ohio State University. He worked diligently with researchers at nearby Ohio State and became well noted for his development of hybrid corn seeds, which were noted to greatly improve yield. Part of the Green Revolution uh, about at that time, I think. Upon retirement, he donated his farm, which had now become a park bearing his name. Well, about 1994, the Dublin Arts Council had the bright idea to honor Sam by constructing (laughs) 109 giant concrete ears of corn on the field that he used to farm. Six feet tall Ears of form, uh, ears of corn. <laughs> they know how to party. They yes, really for sure. Know how to party it was a popping good time. <laughs> Look, <laughs> oh, oh, thank you very much. Local citizens initially took it as a joke. A former cornfield filled with corn uh, with, with giant inedible food at a taxpayer expense. However, they have uh, slowly come to accept this oddball art display. And what's the nickname for it? Corn hinge. Corn hinge. hinge. Yes, corn hinge. <laughs> of course. Hinge. Why not? Right. Now. We've gone around the country. Oh, we, we there's, a, there's a section we've left out. The Deep South. The Deep South also has some great monuments, too. And this is perhaps my favorite. This item comes to us from the Encyclopedia of Alabama. You know, you think about the Encyclopedia Britannica. Well, right up wait, next wait. to that is the Encyclopedia Alabama. of Alabama. I work with a lot of people from Alabama, so I have great respect for those folks. Um, let's talk about the bull weevil. <laughs> Makes sense to me. (laughs) Right. The boll weevil expanded into the United States from Mexico in the 1890s, and the beetles ate their way across cotton fields of the south. They arrived in Alabama sometime in 1910, and upon decimating cotton harvest throughout the state, forced farmers to heed the advice of such agricultural scientists as Tuskegee Institute's George Washington Carver and diversify their planning to include peanuts, sweet potatoes, and soybeans. 
By following Carver's advice, the farmers around Enterprise, Alabama, they don't call it Enterprise for nothing, you know, uh, <laughs> in contrast to the rest of the state, rebounded economically in 1917 with the largest peanut harvest in the nation. Wow, that was pretty impressive. Um, so to show their gratitude for being forced to diversify and thus reap great new wealth, the citizens of Enterprise decided to build a statue honoring the destructive pest. The <laughs> Again. It makes more sense than the killer bee. We, really, we could describe okay. this, but you really have to see it. We'll put a picture of this on our Facebook page. The Bull Weevil Monument, erected in 1919, features a statue of a woman in flowing robe holding a giant bull weevil beetle above her head. So nice. that's from the state of Alabama. And listen, if any of you guys out there live near these, uh, go take a selfie with it and right. send it to us. We want to see the boll weevil. We want to see you. Exactly. With the boll weevil. Right. Now for today's bookshop spot, the part of the show where we take you on a virtual tour of one of the most magical of places, an independent bookshop. So our bookshop spot today is a store that I love the name of. It's called Book Soup. Book Soup. Nice. It goes right along with Remnant Stew, right? Right, yep. yeah. Yep. And this one is located on Sunset Boulevard in West Hollywood, California. All right. Um, they have, uh, along with books, they have stationery, green cards, classic vinyl records. Our last one had records as well. Candles, T-shirts, mugs, all kinds of gifts. And so uh, yet during COVID, a lot of their events are virtual on their Crowdcast webpage. Right. Uh, this, this bookstore was founded by Glenn Goldman in 1975, so a long-running store, and tucked in on the world-famous Sunset Strip. Yeah. Book Soup is the bookseller to the great and infamous <laughs> the great and infamous. <laughs> it could be the, the same person sometimes. So <laughs> They say, we are known worldwide for our active events calendar, floor-to-ceiling bookcases, and celebrity clientele. Fun. I'm so, looking at their website. It's really cool. And I and I asked, one of the questions that I asked the bookstore uh, owners is, uh, is, is your building historical or, or remarkable in any way? And he wrote, uh, this is Daniel Graham, who, right. who is the assistant promotional director of this bookstore. He says, nothing in L.A is historical. They will tear, tear anything down. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's hysterical. And so, and then when asked if there's pets in the store, he says, no pets, but we're pretty sure there is a ghost as mm. evidenced by random books falling down from the shelves. So again, that's book soup. Well, they do have earthquakes out there yeah. too. So it's yeah. a shaking that's good true, time. But I think, I think they kind of know when there's a, an earthquake. <laughs> anyway, and so you can find them on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, uh, Book Soup Bookstore, and uh, at their website, booksoup.com. Great looking place, booksoup.com. I love that name. That is a good name. And now for something really smashing. You know, Leah, when us Texans think of San Antonio, the first thing that comes to our minds is, of course, the Alamo. The ancient structure was the site of an important and inspiring siege during the Texas struggle for independence. Let me go just a little more detail. It was uh, really part of a Spanish mission that was built in 1718. And uh, was functioned as a as an outpost, a, as a Catholic mission. 
the part of the building that's still there today was only the chapel. It used to be much larger. It right. uh, incorporated right. a, quite a bit larger, uh, what would today be a large section of downtown San Antonio. Okay, so when when it was built, was Texas its own country or was Texas no, part no, Texas of Mexico? No, Texas was still, still, part of, Mex- still part of Spain. Spain, yeah, okay. Spain. Texas okay. was still Sorry. part of Spain. And uh, Mexico I'm not was part of Spain. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just here. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, it, then uh, Mexico broke away from Spain in 1821, 100 years later. It had already okay. been there 100 years by that time. And uh, then uh, in, as at first, things were pretty good. Uh, uh, even the new settlers coming in, they had a good constitution, uh, good rights. But then Mexico was overtaken by a notorious dictator, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana. And right. the people in Texas decided, no, we yeah, don't want done. any of that. Next. <laughs> and so there was efforts to made made to break away. Uh, actually, the Texans uh, took the Alamo from Mexican uh, military forces in late 1835 and uh, hailed it as a great victory. But then uh, in the early uh, winter uh, or spring of 1836, February and March, the Mexican army came back and there, there was a, a long siege held at the Alamo um, right. They were they were greatly outnumbered. Managed to whittle down the number of uh, Mexican um, forces considerably, but uh, after about a two week siege, they were overwhelmed and uh, the Alamo was uh, was lost. But it was an ins- inspiration to the other Texas um, soldiers in other parts of uh, the state that uh, eventually did capture Santa Ana at San Jacinto and a part of that famous. They, they they yelled, remember the Alamo. That's right. And, they and were capturing him. Because it was such a heroic last right. stand. And, and who, like Davy Crockett. Right. And Jim, Jim Bowie. That's and right. William Travis. Okay. So talking about the Alamo. I, and can we, you know, I think we can probably say that that's Texas's most that's favorite. Right, yeah, that's pretty much the right. cradle of yeah. Texas yeah. history, I would say. Um, so in 1982-something monumental happened at the Alamo. Can y'all, do y'all remember? I remember this, and he was, he was lucky to walk away, I think. <laughs> well, honestly, okay, so there's what we've heard, and then there's the real story. So I'm going to get into it. So okay. according to loudwire.com, Ozzy Osbourne, the Prince of Darkness, <laughs> was visiting nearby, and completely to his character, he had been partying like a rock star and was very drunk. Right. When he stumbled out into the street wearing a dress... Of his future wife, Sharon. It was her dress right. because she had hidden his clothes in the attempt to keep him inside, keep him from going outside. So yeah, that's what and, it's yeah, That'll work. So she put on his dress and went out and partied. Well, it the, makes perfect so sense the, now. This was before they were married, so she didn't know him so well, I guess. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, he stumbled out in this dress and uh, found the uh, the nearest statue to pee on (laughs) and it it happened it wasn't the alamo okay so i heard that he had peed actually on the the wall of the alamo right and and he didn't he peed on uh the cenotaph in the alamo grounds okay so and what that is is it was a 60 or it is i should say a 60 foot high uh it's like monument. a cemetery monument, I right? Think, it's yeah. like it's kind of like a cenotaph is a tombstone that commemorates the dead that are not actually buried right there. So, right. Uh, so that's what that is. And uh, Ozzy was arrested, but yeah. the bond was only forty dollars. Right. It was only forty. He he made which was a slap on the did, wrist. Yeah. He did made he have bail. it in his purse or in his? Uh, yeah. in his <laughs> <laughs> he made bail and, and he performed the scheduled concert nearby, but he was banned from ever playing in San Antonio, San Antonio again. Right. 
That is until 10 years later in 1992 when he made a very public apology to the city and donated $10,000 to the Daughters of the Republic of Texas, which is the organization oh, yeah, that maintains well, good. He made it right, uh, the Alamo grounds. And so the city forgave him, and Osborne continued to perform concerts in the city. Oh, good. Um, that's a nice ending. I'm glad yes. to know that because I didn't yes. know that last part. And speaking of rock stars in the Alamo, <laughs> Phil Collins. Now, this is, a, this is a better story. This is a feel-good story. How about that? A right. Phil. Former drummer and frontman of the band Genesis, and he also had a His pretty own. good solo career. Right. Yep. Phil Collins, now, he's a Brit, okay? Mm-hmm. So he was born in London, but as a boy, Collins saw a Disney production about Davy Crockett and fell in love with the Alamo. I remember that movie, yeah. Yeah, okay, so uh, as other kids were playing Cops and Robbers, he would reenact the Battle of the Alamo. I mean, and again, come and a, take it. It was a very, yeah, it was a very historic and heroic uh, last stand. So I could see how it was. It was a pretty popular song back in the 50s about Davy Crockett. Too, <laughs> yep. I think that came from that movie. <laughs> so as he grew up, his love became a passion, and Collins started collecting Alamo artifacts, weapons, relics, and original documents. And he, he amassed this huge True. collection. So, it, it, like I said, the collection grew to be impressive, and in 2014, Collins generously donated a significant chunk of it back to Texas. Oh, wow. And, uh, and so at that time, a $100 million Phil Collins Alamo collection was planned, museum was right. planned in order to house the, the number of rare items, including a rifle, one of four remaining in existence, owned by soldier frontiersman Davy Crockett. Davy Crockett, yeah. A fringed leather pouch carried by Crockett and an oh. original uh, Bowie knife, which Jim Bowie had in his possession during the, the Battle of the Alamo. Amazing. Collins was quoted as saying, this completes the journey for me. These artifacts are coming home. So Collins's collection is believed to be the largest of its kind with over 200 total items. And so now, and I didn't know this when I was researching. I mean, I knew about the story. Right. But so all of this was planned. Well, now they just uh, just... In March, so yeah, in March of this year, there were uh, announcements made that the museum has now been opened to the public. Okay, great. Oh, wow. That's good. Yeah. I, see that. I got my information from the Alamo.org as well as RollingStone.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I've been recently there. That hasn't opened yet. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, now, while you're in San Antonio, you might want to see another interesting monument. This one's a little bit different, and uh, you actually have to uh, go through a little bit of clearance to see this one. I'm surprised uh, we didn't know about this, because this would have fit in really well into our other episode. Right. It would have been a good one for our four-legged uh, soldiers. Um, but um, uh, I'm referring to the Military Working Dog Team National Monument. This monument, dedicated in 2013, is located inside Lackland Air Force Base, which is now called Joint Base San Antonio-Lackland. And is desi- uh, I'm sorry, is designed to honor and recognize those working military dogs and their handlers. The main part of the memorial features a bronze statue of a soldier flanked by four different breeds of military dogs. Now here are the different breeds: a Doberman Pinscher, a German Shepherd, Labrador Retriever, and a Belgian Malinois. Uh, Malinois. Mal- Malinois. Malinois. Yeah, my son has one of those. Oh, Malinois. It's I'm a sorry. lot like a German Shepherd. Malinois. Okay. However, for many visitors, the most touching part of the memorial is the separate not-forgotten fountain, which features a Vietnam-era soldier pouring water from a canteen into his helmet for his dog to drink from. Yeah, it's really nice. Uh, Nice Nice-looking monument. Now, you do have to go 
through the visitor center at Lackland and uh, go through a little screening be, to be able to go see that. I bet you can't take your dog through, can you? Um, but now I don't know if you can take your dog or not. That would be interesting if you could. Um, now here's a good question for you. What was the first? This is a, not really our official trivia question, but this is a this is a warm up to the trivia question. <laughs> what was the first designated national monument in the United States? That answer might come as a surprise to you. According to the National Park Service, the 1,200-foot rocky monolith in Wyoming known as Devil's Tower was designated by Teddy Roosevelt as the very first national monument in 1906. That's very Teddy Roosevelt. Right. Now, have you seen this one? No, no. I have not seen this one. No, I haven't I seen it either. I've seen uh, the pictures of it, though. It'll make it really interesting. And it's in Wyoming. It's in Wyoming, and uh, it's it looks basically like an enormous tree stump that goes up 1,200 feet. Uh, but it's a rocky outcrop is what it is. Uh, and it has rocky cracks. It's circular, and it, they're, they're like crevices up the side, of uh, all the sides of it. And we'll have a picture of this. Right. Now, long before Caucasian settlers arrived, this enormous outcrop has been inspiring Native Americans for centuries. They called it Mateo Tipi, or Grizzly Bear Lodge. And it had several legends regarding its origin. I like this one. According to the Kiowas, their tribe once camped on a stream uh, where there were many bears. One day, seven little girls were playing at a distance from the village and were chased by some bears. The girls ran toward the village, and when the bears were about to catch them, they jumped to a low rock about three feet in height. One of them prayed to the rock, Rock, take pity on us. Rock, save us. The rock heard them and began to elongate itself upward, pushing the children higher and higher out of reach of the bears. When the bears jumped up and scratched the rock, that would have caused the crevices on the side, uh, they broke their claws and fell back down upon the ground. The rock continued to push the children upward into the sky while the bears jumped at them. Oh, wow. That is That's a good really, story. That right. is a good story. And now for something completely off topic and off kilter. Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. So today's oddity du jour. In, in 2018... Jeff Weekly got quite a surprise. He's an avid sportsman, and he had a painful bump on his foot, form on his foot. He opened it up, expecting it to be just a normal blister, but something solid came out. So came out of his foot? It came out of his foot, something that looked suspiciously like a tooth. In fact, it turned out to be a shark's tooth, and he knew just exactly where it came from. He had a shark's tooth in his foot. He had a shark's tooth in his foot that he got 24 years prior to that. So in 1994... Jeff was surfing off of a Florida beach when he got bitten on his foot. It was just one bite uh-huh. when the culprit, and of course he didn't see it, so he didn't really know if it was he a just shark felt or it. not. Yeah. Uh, but the culprit decided that Jeff wasn't the meal he was looking for and disappeared back into the waves. So he never, like I said, he never really saw it and knew exactly what it had bitten him. Right. Uh, but, you know, if something bites you in the ocean, it's got to be a shark, right? So Jeff, um, out of this tooth, Jeff planned to make a pendant, but then he heard a story about researchers uh, that were able to identify the species of shark that bit a boy off the coast of New York. They used a tooth that came from a wound in his leg. So Jeff sent the tooth off and then started to worry a little bit. 
So Jeff had a nibble. Uh. He, he, yes, he did. He had a nibble, and he, and there's a picture of him, and and it's you know it's a nibble. Right. <laughs> I don't think he actually had to get stitches or anything, but it was you know it's definitely. I wonder a if bite. he knew that the was, tooth was in there from the bite originally. No, he didn't. He didn't. He was absolutely surprised. And I've heard a lot of stories about uh, people that have been in like car accidents right. or or different things, which later years later glass or gravel yeah. or something working their, their way, way out, out. Yeah. and that's that's kind of what happened to him. But uh, Jeff said, and I quote, I was very excited to determine the identity of the shark because I'd always been curious. Mm -hmm. I was also a little bit hesitant to send in the tooth because for a minute I thought they would come back and tell me I'd been bitten by a mackerel (laughs) or a houndfish or something really humiliating. Barracuda. So researchers cleaned the tooth and extracted some of the pulp to obtain the DNA. And using databases of shark and ray DNA, they were able to determine that it was, in fact, a shark. It was a black tip shark mm-hmm. that that bit Jeff and left this little memento. Okay, a and black tip shark. Black tip shark. And, and they're not exactly small. They can grow up to be about eight feet in length, but they're usually pretty timid. Mm-hmm. In fact, about uh, 70% of shark bite victims never discover what species bit them because shark bites rarely turn into shark attacks. Uh, most species are not a threat to humans, and the bite is just a ca- case of mistaken identity. So despite the bite, Jeff has remained an avid surfer. He says, I certainly don't have a hatred of sharks or any feeling of vindictiveness toward them. They're part of our natural world, he said. So so no hard feelings. No hard feelings between me and the shark. Well, that was nice. The shark lost a tooth, by the way, so, you know. <laughs> yeah, the shark gave, gave in to that. So. That's nice. Well, now let's go back to our monuments. Uh, you know, it seems like uh, as as I was researching, I found quite a few here in the state of Texas, and so I didn't. Uh, I actually called a few of them out, but this one, uh, well, it, it really needs to be a part of this uh, listing. Because, I agree. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm actually a bit familiar with this one um, in uh, in uh, the southwest Texas city of Crystal City. Crystal City, Texas, has an interesting history. Uh, when the railroad arrived in this town in the late 1920s and early 1930s, the town made its name for onions. Okay. You know, Well-known, famous for onions. But during the Great Depression, Crystal City thrived because of its spinach. The town could produce about 10,000 pounds a day. That's a lot of spinach. That right? is. Spinach. The thriving spinach business landed the town the title as World Spinach Capital. I don't know if there was really a selection committee for that or a competition, <laughs> but they think they probably just decided, hey, you know what? Right here, we're the world's finished capital. Yeah, prove it, prove that we're not. So according to RoadsSideAmerica.com, uh, Roads, uh, Crystal City is still a major producer of spinach today. Well, in 1937, with the blessing of creator E.C. Sager, the town erected a statue of <laughs> of Popeye. Popeye the Sailor Man. <laughs> right, Popeye. Obviously, with the title of World Spinach Capital and Popeye's love for spinach, the tribute is perfect. The statue still lives in front of the city city hall today, and it's right there for you to take the perfect selfie with. There's even a second statue inside the Chamber of Commerce. So if you're down in southwest Texas, Run through Crystal City and get a picture with Popeye. And send it to us. Right, in the spinach capital of the world. Now, if you're ever passing through Hamilton, New Jersey, going really going all around the country. Yeah, we are. Right We're today? traveling all over. Right. You definitely want to take a make a stop to see the Great Depression breadline statue. <laughs> uh, this seems like an unusual thing to, to depict, but it is a, an important time in history. The bronze sculpture recreates the harsh conditions of the 1930s as it depicts five men 
who are waiting in line to receive food from a soup kitchen. The figures all have downcast eyes and long coats, serving as a reminder of the extreme conditions during uh, one of the darker periods of American history. Oh, wow. You know, I have a bread token from that that period. My uh, grandparents owned a a hardware store, but my grandmother's parents and my great-grandparents owned a grocery store during, right. you know, in that era in Louisville. Mm-hmm. And they had, uh, and I have the box too. Uh, there's a wooden box that my grandfather made. A bread box. Yeah. Well, you know, they would put the co- the tokens in oh, there. Oh, the tokens. They okay. would put the tokens. So, you know, you would get the, and I don't know exactly how it was. How uh, they were distributed. The, yeah. yeah, that's well, right. I don't know if it was kind of like food stamps are today or I don't know. But you would get these tokens, and it was good for one loaf of bread. Right. Interesting. I know there were rationed booklets during World War II, so this was just before that. Something similar, I guess. Um, now, let's see. Uh, also from uh, attractionsofamerica.com, we find some interesting monuments to the corporate world. <laughs> I like a couple of these. Really. <laughs> one is called Corporate Head. <laughs> In Los Angeles, California, it's the it's a bronze depiction of a businessman holding a briefcase who has his head stuck in the wall of Ernst and Young Building. The statue's creator, Terry Allen, claims that it's a critique of corporate America and its impact on the average worker. I don't know. I think I think corporate uh, the average worker would get a good good laugh out of the uh, the statue with the guy with his head stuck in the building. Yeah, like looking over his shoulder. What are you doing? Yeah, <laughs> his head is just right in there. Now, this one's really one of my favorites. So a similar statue can be found in Brooklyn. Uh, a crocodile eating a capitalist <laughs> <laughs> depicts as a, a scene pretty much pretty like you would expect from a title like that. A crocodile with human-like hands emerges from a manhole and is devouring a businessman whose head appears to be a money bag. <laughs> so it's a sewer crocodile. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a sewer out. crocodile eating a capitalist. And finally, we have a charging bull versus fearless girl now for years charging bull was a standalone bronze statue uh, depicting the fearlessness of wall street this is on in new york city right outside of uh, the new york stock exchange uh, so there was this big boy you know if if uh, if if you're confident about the uh, future of the of the stock market you were said to be bullish and so there's this right. enormous bull right. out there uh, and that was until the uh, fearless girl was installed in 2017 fearless girl depicts a girl with her hands on her hips, proudly staring down Charging Bull. Fearless Girl was constructed to send the positive message of workplace gender diversity on the male-dominated Wall Street scene. There uh, you I, think, go. I think that's a well-needed. Yeah. If you saw The Wolf of Wall Street, I think uh, Fearless Girl uh, is uh, well-needed at that location. Okay, so for our last monumental tidbit, we head back to Washington, D.C., where it all started, to the Washington National Cathedral. Atlas Obscura tells us that the Washington National Cathedral is the sixth largest cathedral in the world. It is of neo-Gothic design, and I don't know, I don't know what the difference between Gothic design and neo-Gothic design is, except for maybe Gothic is more ornate. But uh, it's a functioning place of worship as well as a popular tourist destination. It I've is breathtakingly beautiful. I haven't been there. I haven't been there. I haven't, it looks. I've seen it on television, but, but I want to go now because, yeah. <laughs> because listen to this. So. You might be a bit surprised to find a certain science fiction villain depicted in the various sculptures <laughs> that adorn the building. During the 1980s, an outer portion of the National Cathedral was under construction, 
and a contest was held for school children to design a sculpture to be added to the towers. I mean, how cool is that? Right, yeah. Uh, a child by the name of Christopher Rader drew the design for the sculpture, and it was selected as the third pa- third place prize. And it doesn't mention what the first and second were. Yeah, what do they get? But, uh, <laughs> but the third place prize included an addition to the renovation. So this sculpture is often referred to as a gargoyle. And so you know what gargoyles Yeah, gargoyles. You see them around uh, medieval churches in Europe, for sure. But technically, okay, so technically a gargoyle, at least architecturally speaking, uh, has, it, it's it's a water spout. Right. Okay. It's a drain. And the ones that look like gargoyles but are not water spouts are technically called grotesques. Hmm. So this is a grotesque. It doesn't okay. have a water spout. So, uh, to see the sculpture, you need a good set of binoculars. And from the northwest parking lot, near the top of the northwest tower, Darth Vader can be spotted between two massive arches. So, they got Darth (laughs) Vader on the National (laughs) Cathedral? I never knew that. Yes. yes. (laughs) And while it might seem a little irreverent, you got to remember that gargoyles and other grotesques were often depicted as what? Demons and monsters. Mm-hmm. And and because it, well, it's kind of... he is kinda, a Sith Lord. I mean... <laughs> that's oh. right. You know, do, the dark side. I wonder if the pastor ever says, turn to the book of Luke. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. And now it's time, boys and girls, for the trivia challenge. Uh, you know how it works. Like and follow our Facebook page at Remnant and Stew Podcast. Like and share this episode post about monuments. Put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post. And the first person to do that will be the winner. So what hey. is our question today, Steve? Well, the question today is what monument was held hostage by whom and why? And that question comes straight to us from Harbin Gould. Thank oh, you, Harbin. All right, Good job, Harbin. Harbin. Good job. What monument was Hell's Hodges held hostage by whom and why? <laughs> held hostage. Uh, Remnants is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode. And mispronounce. Uh, yes, and butcher <laughs> all kinds of pronunciations. Audio is produced by Philip Sinkfeld, who puts in his little dad jokes here and there. <laughs> Our theme music is by Kevin McLeod, with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. Special thanks to Judy Meeker and Harbin Gould for helping us out as well. You can connect with us through our Facebook and Instagram at Remnant Stew Podcast or through our email at staycurious at remnantstew.com. Send us an email and say hi. Tell us your favorite episode so far. Tell us what you want to hear us cover in an episode and send us selfies, especially with monuments. And now speaking of monuments, uh, this this was all, all United States. We're planning another one for international monuments That's coming right. your way soon. So before you go, please hit the subscribe button so you won't miss an episode. Please take the time to give us a review on iTunes. There's a convenient link on our website to make it easy for you. We also have a button on our website where you can, quote, buy us a coffee to help us cover the cost of producing the podcast. And also share Remnant Stew with your friends, family, and your president, museum curator, and taxi driver. And until next time, please remember to be kind and and always stay curious. curious.